0: The Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com, and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck Ocelli.
1: Happy April Fool's Day 2021, and I'm not going to play any tricks on you, and I'm glad that you have found the show you were looking for. Anyway, it is Thor's Thursday, Thursday night. That's right, fourth broadcast day of the week. And uh, still a little behind on the podcast, you know the the, the sprained thumb. you don't realize it slows you down with a mouse, but it does. <laughs> anyway, is what it is. I'll get those other podcasts out, uh, the uh, popcorn politics and uh, last night's Ochelli effect will be out later tonight or early tomorrow depending uh, and we'll get this one out tomorrow as well. And I'm grateful to have this one going live to you as I speak. But again, welcome if you're picking it up by a podcast, as most of you do. Larry Hancock. We have been going through his collected works. Now tonight we got a little extra treat. Guess what? Stu Wexler is with us as well. Why is that? Well, these two men co-authored a few things together. Uh, but the subject of tonight's discussion. Uh, is uh, is certainly something that is relevant to Stu. <laughs> and so I'm glad to have both of them with us. And uh, you know, Larry, which which book did we choose to go with this week? Uh, we're we're still, oddly enough, in the national security section, aren't we? Yeah,
2: we're. Well, this is this is where things things get a little, I won't say tenuous but when do you exactly transfer from issues of national security? For example, we're talking about the King assassination this evening, which produced a national security response, an mm-hmm. immense series of uh, national calling out of the National Guard, uh, burnings in cities, riots. You, you would have to think of killing Martin Luther King as actually having an impact on national security and as, as we talk about what Stu and I researched, it was intended for that purpose. So mm-hmm. when we talk about the King assassination, we're crossing the border from issues of national security and tying it to political assassination. So it it's we're crossing the border, Chuck.
1: So so it's the the bridge because here we go. We're touching both Both sides, (laughs) you know, of the divide. And it's kind of strange because it's almost like uh, one issue of national security, but really not, because we talked about multiple issues of national security Uh, in earlier broadcasts and, uh, you know, going through your collection one by one we had to talk about multiple angles here almost seems like you narrow it down to one angle which again explodes back into multiple angles I don't know if I'm explaining that right um Stu Wexler also with us you know first of all Stu how are you doing but secondly um what do you think of that is is that an accurate way to sort of look at this where It seems like it bottlenecks and then opens back up nice and wide into all the issues of national security that are going to have to come up during, well, this discussion.
3: Well, um, first of all, I'm doing well and I'm I'm glad to be on, Chuck, and thank you for having me on again. And hi, as always, to Larry. Um, In terms of sort of opening it up, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I, I kind of and I think Larry and I both kind of place uh, the the King assassination in a slightly different context that's national security related which is one of of domestic terrorism Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously very applicable to the modern day but I think to what you're saying and to what Larry was saying what you have is a situation where there are tripwires that in the in the 1960s, of a lot of, I believe, interrelated things. Uh, Professor Scott might refer to it as as deep politics, I guess, mm-hmm. where you could be tangential to the kinds of things that you know Larry writes about, and we talk about, for instance, when we talk about the the Kennedy assassination, John Kennedy's assassination, and still be in that. Broader framework of national security. So, if you have sort of subterfuge, I guess you might t- uh, talk about um, where behind the scenes, deep in sort of the recesses of the Pentagon, they're coming up with plans and mm. and sort of operations to try and. Uh, address what they see as a potential uh, – what the late Jerry McKnight, who you and I had a, a show about recently, right. referred to as a domestic Ted offensive, that that's really what the national security apparatus had started to shift to in the late 1960s, this fear that they were going to have some kind of you know, revolution inside the United States. And maybe we'll talk more about that overlaps what what we're what what we see as the sort of core sort of driving force behind the the king assassination, and we'll talk about it. Right. And so you get responses, and I think Larry was talking about it. You get responses that are, you know. Have, that are national security in nature to the events of the King assassination and that are meant in many ways to pacify the country. Right. That I would argue, as we'll talk about it more, are looks I think sometimes are even misinterpreted as being even more sinister than they were because of the nature of where the country sort of national security focus was fo- was was aimed at that time. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of where I would what I would say.
1: Well, no, I understand. And you know what? For me, this is a difficult topic. And the reason is that there is a great deal of context and obviously I'm going to turn back to Larry on context. That's <laughs> what I do. Um, but there's a great deal of context that is often missed when people start talking about, you know, J. Edgar Hoover and the fear of the Black Messiah and all of that going on. And therefore, if that was a real uh, fear of the national security state in general, that they had to have some level of preparedness in order to be responsible in their job. I'm trying to take as innocuous a view of this as I can. Uh, I don't view it innocuously, I I view it very insidiously, but I'm going to do my best here to stand back and say, okay, there's something to this. And so I think we need to begin with that context before the assassination and talk about what was in play. Um. You know, post Kennedy assassination, but previous to the King assassination, and by the way, <clears throat> one of the rare criticisms you're ever going to hear of one of Larry's titles on my on my show. <laughs> really quickly, I don't like the title of this book. I'll tell you why, because um, it wound up on bookshelves uh, near Bill O'Reilly's crap, and um, <laughs> I just. It it just—it felt to me like it was a title that he would have written about. How do you even cared about the King assassination? Um, There's my one criticism. (laughs) Okay. Well,
2: and that that is perfectly accurate because I have to say that was intentional. We Uh. were getting—we had gotten so tired of Bill O'Reilly's terrible history writing that we decided the least we could do was preempt him from taking. The king assassination and doing the same thing to it. He's done to all the others, so we intentionally beat him to the title. Is that is that correct, Stu? I mean, that that was a conscious
3: thought, Chuck. So
1: okay, of course yeah,
3: we were, it was sort of a combination of trolling him and preempting him at the same time, because he would just enter into the fields that people spent twenty five years researching. And suddenly become an authoritative voice by anointment. And we were both wanting to sort of stick a little
1: jab in there. Um, Oh, oh, and that's a good... You know what? I withdraw my objection. A a, a book without... (laughs) on this subject
3: by taking that title so it was a definite little bit of attempt at
1: trolling. That's great I I therefore withdraw my objection Um, and (laughs) (laughs) because I mean his ridiculous series and I read one and a half of his books honestly Um, because it, it was just look first we had Killing Kennedy and then we had what Killing Lincoln and then I forget who he was killing next but it was like
2: Patton
1: Patton, oh.
2: right? Like he has, a, he has a killing Jesus, doesn't he? And his most yes. recent one is killing Sitting Bull,
1: which oh, is okay.
2: my God. I just went into a wonderful museum on Native American history, and for Lord's sake, he's got a third of the shelf space oh. with it. Garbage. It's just
1: pitiful. <laughs> it's just, and it's you know, it, it's badly written for starters. <laughs> it's just, it's not well written. It's very. I mean I can't even see how it really Bill O'Reilly his writing style when he wrote about his life earlier um, I didn't mind that you know I don't like the guy or anything but just objectively again as a piece of literature it was like I kind of understand this style that you're using um, but I'm not sure what happened in between then and his historical books tear uh, which just was god awful. And, and I just, uh, I, I, you know, like I said, I objected to the idea that your book had to sit near that stuff. Um, so, but, I, again, withdraw my objection since it was intentional and I appreciate that. So, okay, enough with the jokes, <laughs> but I thought it was necessary to bring it up. Um, let's get back into the seriousness of this, okay? And again, I want to turn it back over to Larry for context, because I think that's important when we're talking about the circumstances of, okay, so this happened in 1968, and we're actually very close to the anniversary, aren't we? So I got to say that if you don't look at everything that led up to that time period, it's very difficult to understand... Uh, the reactions afterwards, I mean, if you if you look at just the reactions in the assassination, that's one thing. But if you don't examine all of the circumstances which built up to that time, uh, not just specifically related to Dr. King, but related to social movements, related to the changes, the use of uh, certain agencies, the way they were being used, the fact that J. Edgar Hoover is still alive. I'm not saying, you know, he's the ultimate boogeyman. I'm not one of these people who screams about him. But nefarious eh, sometimes, <laughs> okay, in my mind. Um, but either way, what about this idea? And and immediately people will always bring up the rise of the Black Messiah, quoting from, uh, you know, or paraphrasing really, from some documentation. And they talk about that and you know, just race in general, and then they get lost in the maze of race, forgetting that there was an overall impact which expanded well beyond, um, almost like, I hate to use this phrase, but it's like, I feel like it needs to be, racial partisanship, it went beyond that, and King, in my mind, was extremely dangerous to the establishment in general, not just because of civil rights and there's a lot of things that go into that so how do we begin to even you know summarize for somebody what what y- you need to understand to even begin to set the stage for what happens in 1968
2: larry well i think there are three points of context that are really critical um Stu introduced the first one and the first one was there really was a serious national security concern about riots uh, in the metropolitan areas. I mean, by that, by that time, we'd already been through two summers of major riots across the U.S., from the Northeast through Chicago to Los Angeles. I mean, we were even at the point where there was an effort to, to anticipate what would happen during the next summer because rioting had been uh, an ongoing problem. So you have to accept that there was a concern that the riot riot situation could escalate and had escalated every year up to that point, and that was just a matter of fact. And And the president, uh, Johnson, had issued and, and signed some legislation essentially – authorizing the military to begin to a collect intelligence and b prepare to deal with large scale riots and not not riots just resulting from race there there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of strikes going on there was some union violence so ba- basically the first point of context is that for the better part of two years up to that point in time there had been an authorization given to the regional military intelligence units to, to develop plans for what they were going to do if large-scale rioting broke out, and that's that's just a fact. So there is is that military component, and we actually have the documents on that, and we can trace various exercises that they were going through and intelligence collections that they were going through, and, and including when we get into the King story in Memphis. Uh, so that's that's absolutely factual. Um, well, let me, yep. let me
1: interrupt you to, to, to make sure you hit that point about Memphis when you get into the King story. I'm going to do it ahead of time because I want to help to set a piece of context here about the real-world application. The idea that <clears throat> there was a military intelligence team in Memphis on the day of the King assassination... Um, some people have utilized that to make a larger point that I think maybe is not valid Uh because there were many military intelligence teams that were deployed domestically at this time and it actually speaks exactly to the point you were making it may have been that this was a routine um, <clears throat> a routine thing that happened Now, it may not have been routine, and I have, you know, again, mixed feelings about this because I'm not quite as well-versed on the King assassination as I am uh, on on the Kennedy assassinations, either one of them, to be honest. But I do know more than the average person, I will say. it, It strikes me as odd some of the things that people think are remarkable in the King story that may be a little less remarkable. Maybe I'm not articulating this right, but what about that, Larry?
2: Well, that's right, especially because when people first started writing about the King assassination, and quite frankly, even investigating it and doing inquiries, Mm -hmm. what I just remarked about was not known. I mean, that was highly confidential at the time. This This was classified information that, A, the government was that worried and B, that these units were being activated and going through exercises. Actually, up to that point in time, most of the exercises had been on the West Coast. Uh, as you can imagine, Los Angeles uh, was a, a major point of, of those counter riot and intelligence collection exercises. And, and to some extent, you know, they're, they're very straightforward. It's like, where, are, where might mobs form? what would be their targets how do, how do we track movements how do we deal with the situation uh, now we can see all that information so it's another one of those cases where something that was really mysterious and really suspicious mm-hmm. is less so with the documents that we've managed to collect and find over the last few years if we even have we have the actual names uh, the, the list of people that were sent into Memphis. And by the way, they were sent in during the first uh, strikers' march, not not simply the march where King was, was planning to support and was killed. They had been there before. Right. So we actually can see the records of who was deployed, what groups they came from, their after-action report. And so that makes it less mysterious. Uh, and and it, we do know, as you're trying to point out, it's not an anomaly. That sort of thing was going on anywhere where there was something happening, whether it was a big union effort, a strike. Or there was some strike violence going on. Uh, that was just that was what was happening at the time.
1: Well, another thing, Larry. Though it, I'm, I'm almost going to sound like I'm contradicting my own point, but I want to ask you this uh, because I, I've heard people say that you know now we know all of this. Um, I think there is still the potential for still classified uh, operations that may have not been as noticeable, but similar uh, in other places that are still not known um, because nobody bothered to ask yet, uh, because maybe there was no reason to ask. Maybe there was a, a hypothetical for you. Um, During some of the rioting and stuff like that, there were places in New Jersey and New York that, you know, ended up uh, in violent circumstances. If there's no reason to reveal that maybe there were people deployed there uh, because nothing of significance happened that anybody took notice of, it's possible we could still have other classified operations. That took place oh. at that time as well. And and my point being that, you know, look, Newark burned at one point. Um, there were riots in, uh, you know, places like Asbury Park uh, and, and other areas. Uh, certain areas in New York City definitely fell into a bit of uh, temporary chaos, let's call it. Um, it could be that for the purposes of overall national security, that people were sent in a lot of places that we still don't necessarily know about. In my opinion, what do you think of that?
2: Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I mean, we know about some of these other locations, and we know in particular about Memphis because we researched that. You right. know, as, as you say, what we do know, though, I, and what I can offer, I think, Chuck, that's relevant. What we do know is some of our suspects. Mm-hmm. the the people the network that we feel was behind the king assassination actually participated in and helped incite some of those riots in newark and new jersey in the northeast as two can chime in on that but that it, it's interesting the you kind of tend to think and, and categorize a lot of the stuff that the that the incitement to some of the violence uh was actually coming nationally out of a network of people that ran all the way from L.A. through the South up into the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And these people were trying... These, <laughs> these were radical uh, white races who were trying to incite that violence. And actually, we know about it because some of them got arrested in different locations. But, I mean, that's a corollary to what we were saying. Uh, so we know a little bit about what was going on in the other locations because of (laughs) we've traced some of our suspects there.
3: Yeah. And if, if, if I could just maybe three things off of what Larry said. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what you said, Chuck, I mean, it was a legitimate and very pronounced fear in, in national security circles. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I think nowadays, In the last two, three years, maybe in the last five, six years, people maybe can relate to it more. It would have seemed absurd to somebody in 1988 that people legitimately in government thought we can have an out-and-out race war, Hmm. but in 68, they absolutely believed that was a possibility, and – you know, there, we have people in the, in the State Department putting out articles in Newsweek, talking about this as being a legitimate issue. So, not only do I think we could know more, I I would bet money that what you'd find is specific state, city level, you know, decentralized some to some extent operations where they're worried about this all over the country. It's the national basically security posture in 68 and you know our minds are always on Vietnam hmm. but you could make an argument that right next to that was and maybe even above it was a fear of really coordinated ugly domestic unrest and so I I would agree with you Chuck I would argue and Larry and I'll get to this. And later, but it relates to what Larry was saying. Mm-hmm. If When you take that position and you understand and you dig into the dive into the documents, who they were surveilling. So, for instance, you mentioned the very famous Fear of a Black Messiah document. Mm-hmm. And if you actually read the document, there's three people that they focus their attention on. There's Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. There is... Uh, who the was then? He went by the name of Stokely Carmichael,
0: right. and
3: he is, you know, black nationalism. Uh, the you know, very closely related to different black militant groups, and then Martin Luther King. But the person they focused on at the end as the real threat wasn't King, and it wasn't Elijah Muhammad. It was Stokely, and if you look at, for instance. Things like Operation Chaos, they were very much directed at the more radical black nationalist groups, and so if you add those two things together, that you're absolutely petrified about some kind of tipping point revolution inside the United States to the point that you have Pentagon operations in place for potential deployment all over the country, mm-hmm. and you have the idea that the real potential issue would be uh, some sort of incitement by or in you know you know critical mass from black power organizations then. The the conventional theory that often gets trotted out about King doesn't make nearly as much sense because you would be taking out the one person who you in your own documents have identified as still being, at least ostensibly in the minds of Hoover, but we know from knowing King's history, nonviolent, and – leaving the country to both the folks on the left who got a lot of the focus of these kinds of operational plots, but also the folks on the right that Larry's talking about. And in city after city, those folks were trying, the right-wing folks Mm -hmm. were trying to start a race war. They privately would talk to each other about trying to piggyback on the domestic unrest that was happening across the country. They put out fake pamphlets that they would run out through cities to try and falsely identify uh, some sort of police action or whatever, you know, basically incite people in the black power movement. Mm -hmm. They... Spoke and incited riots in, Over and over again Throughout the country that, that, And that goes back all the way to the early 60s And we're very successful With it unfortunately And so mm-hmm. if you're looking at Just context which is what you're looking at And motive The motive doesn't work In the direction of the national Security apparatus who's trying to Quiet this stuff down it would work in the direction of the people who actually want to incite things and make things happen. And that's not presentism. That's not us going back and imagining what we think now in light of the riots that followed King's murder. When black civil rights figures were killed, or when King was even attempts on King's life mm-hmm. were made, riots followed. So people in the right-wing movement would have been well aware of what could be accomplished, and they they said it, what could be accomplished if you could kill King. It works in their agenda, not so much in the agenda of the national security state, because if anything, King was losing influence by 1968, not gaining it. And one of the big things I point out when we talked about Professor McKnight Mm -hmm. was one of the big things his book on the Poor People's Campaign was establishing was and my own personal talks with people who were on the periphery of it, it was struggling Mm -hmm. despite King's attention and energy it was struggling when he was killed so uh, in terms of context that's I think a great opening it's it's this idea of of what i call of my tell my students i call the mid-60s to the mid-70s the age of social upheaval right and then there are certain people who want to really exploit that and we document them in our book so um let me bring it back to you chuck i was just sort of piggybacking on what Larry was saying. No,
1: that's perfect. No, that's, perfect. that's exactly uh, what it is I uh, was was hoping to hear about. Now, this only leaves me with one more of these open questions before we really get into, you know, the, the way the book is structured and what it tells us. Um, and I'll start with Larry on this. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, when you're looking at the reaction of the national security apparatus here and you're examining how it is they might have seen King as well you know maybe the best of uh, a bad situation uh, when it comes to this sort of thing and how it could explode is there any evidence though that the national security apparatus even flinched at the people that and and even growing up for me, I remember people still talking about this time period as a kid and you knew that there were individuals that were spoiling for that race war. You knew, even if you didn't know them directly, you knew they existed. You knew they had influence. You knew that they were there in the course of your research, Larry, though, did you come up with anything that gave you a hint that there was a show of concern from the national security apparatus about those people who thought, you know what, it's a good idea. I mean, almost uh, the Manson plan, let's start a race war. Uh, You know, and I say that, you know, really backhanded because I actually don't believe that altogether, the Bugliosi story. But let's go back to this. Is there any evidence that you saw where you said, well, at least they seem to be looking at the terrorists who would have enjoyed this idea that, you know, King's death leads to riots, were, were they looking at them as a threat? Or was it all about just containing, uh, this is an ugly term, but just cont- and, and it's going to sound racist, but just containing the angry black man? I mean, were there, they only you know, concerned are, with that? Said, Go ahead. There, there
2: are indications of that, Chuck, and let me, let me give a 2 phase answer, and it's kind of striking that... that Disconnect is striking. There is no doubt that within major metropolitan police departments, mm-hmm. not, not at the Pentagon, not at the national security level, but within LAPD or within these, the subversive desk, if you will, the, the counterintelligence desk of those people did compile names mm-hmm. of, of people that they thought the real The real black militants, the guys that they thought, you know, were armed, uh, would would start violence. They they attempted to infiltrate their organizations and and did infiltrate their organizations. And in some instances, and Stu and I have come across this before, but it, it appears that the police departments, rather than necessarily the FBI, were the the biggest committed the largest amount of placement of provocateurs. In other words, they, they're, they infiltrated these local organizations and encouraged them to do things that will allow the police to lock them up. And so I do see and have seen examples of that on a city level, major police departments. Um, I, I would say almost every police department tried to at least infiltrate those groups. And and this is one of the, again, things that we do see in Memphis. And I think it was, it's suspicious in a way, but Memphis police did have, uh, did infiltrate and had someone inside the local militant, black militant group, the invaders in Memphis, who was part of their group. It's It's an interesting story. The reason he managed to infiltrate the group is that he was the only one in the group who had a car. I think it was a Volkswagen. So he would drive everybody around to get them together and get them in meetings. And he was actually observing them and continued observing them while they were meeting with King because King was trying to reconcile with them and make sure they didn't do something stupid during the march. But So infiltration, absolutely, across the board. Provocateurs to get them to commit crimes where they could be taken off the street and arrested, absolutely. That's a very real thing.
3: Um, if I could add here, because I think Chuck was probably, if if I read his question right, he was asking, was there any attention of similar or symmetrical kind of attention given to the right-wing groups huh. yeah, that, that's... Were, that were involved? And if, if, if I could yeah. chime in, there were also, and to, to, to piggyback on Larry, I do uh, local police... We're well aware in many different states, uh, the attorney general of California, for instance, uh, put out a report on what it was amount to basically domestic terrorism back in the middle of the 1960s mm-hmm. and really identified a bunch of the groups that Larry and I focus on as being huge threats, not just in the state of California, but potentially even beyond. In terms of the national security level, I think Larry would it's true on this one that the 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 when you get up to say pentagon level there wasn't nearly as much interest in those groups that i could detect but there was definitely interest by the fbi it's probably not proportional to the interest that they had in um a group like the black panthers but depending on and it wasn't even so depending on what state and field office you were in like this. The sense I always got was that, 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 that Georgia didn't aggressively go after the Klan the way you would hope they would.
4: Right.
3: But Mississippi, it was an out and out war. Uh, and they went after right wing groups, especially the Klan, to a point where it really strained somebody. If you're a civil libertarian. It really strains your um, commitments because you don't like and really have a deep distaste for the Ku Klux Klan in ways that I don't have for a group like the Black Panthers. Right. And yet, you know, everybody knows about some of the really ugly stuff the FBI did versus the Panthers. Right. In Mississippi, they did some of the same exact things to the Klan in terms of setting them up, the Klan member up, one of our main. Uh, people that we focus on in our book to be killed and no question about it, no arrest, no reading of the rights, nothing we are going to set up a sting to kill you in much Mm. the same way that they set up a sting in the minds of many and I tend to agree to basically set Fred Hampton up Black Panther in Chicago to be killed. Many people know the Hampton story but they don't know the story of Kathy Ainsworth and Tommy Terrence They'd know a lot about it if they read our books. And so my answer to your question, Chuck, if I put a put a sort of ribbon on it, is yeah. it was there, but it was uneven. It was and it was I don't think it was quite as proportional to what was brought to bear on uh you know you know, seen as far left groups. But mm. The far-right groups did, depending on the state, the local police department, the state police, were a concern. They should have been probably more of one, but they definitely were a concern. That's
2: that's a very good point, Stu, and I, I, I was on the other side of that. But I think we could even say that from some of the incidents we've seen, probably FBI informants, provocateurs, whatever you want to call them, these guys would have actually been informants were involved with on the right with more murders and racist violent racist acts than anyone has ever imagined. Uh I don't mm-hmm. think that's you're right. The Hampton is well known in in the public mind but the number of FBI provocateurs that actually were associated with murders and were not prosecuted is is Surprising,
3: and and if I could add to that, and maybe we get it to the end, it's it's actually something that developed even further after we published Killing King, um, but we certainly speculate on it, and I think develop a what was a circumstantial case that I think is much stronger now. That that may very well have been what was in play with with King. That there may have been a senior member, at least one. Of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about, Mm -hmm. who was informing on the King assassination prior to it happening. Now, you get a little bit speculative there, but they definitely had somebody who was high up in – and we know that now. That was confirmed when I finally got a hold of a book that covered the uh, Beckwith trial in the early 1990s. They found Mm -hmm. out – certain what we have suspected for a very long time, that Mm -hmm. there was an informant very high up in the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and he is the best case scenario as being somebody who could have been maybe the only person informing on one person that we focus a lot on by the name of Tommy Terrence as a potential patsy Mm -hmm. and he is also somebody who almost definitely was a person that was similar to those who know, follow the Kennedy assassination to George Joe Edis, brought back for the House Select Committee as an anonymous witness to basically clear all of the people who we believe were involved with what was almost definitely, even by his own files, false over-assertions about the sort of jurisdictions of the clan. and that is a – that that was something that I the, – the, the confirmation of it, we didn't even – it came after we published Killing King. Mm-hmm. So um, on the subject of provocateurs, per what Larry said and informants, we may have had somebody inside the King plot, And I think that maybe explains at least some of the shenanigans that Larry and I document in the book in terms of the FBI not doing or following the kinds of leads that they should have, not putting together the case the way we did. It maybe explains part of that because it would have resulted in a huge embarrassment to the bureau Mm -hmm.
2: it it's always a catch-22 for the fbi when they manage to get somebody deep inside who's an extremely valuable source and then the group they're working with does something terribly violent and and murderous and it's sort of like well do we really want to bring this to trial um and you know the person's going to say oh yeah i was working with them um (laughs) you you can see the the conflicts that can emerge
1: Right. Well, you know, speaking of conflicts, because in the second hour, I want to get deep into the specifics of the book, but speaking of conflicts and conflicted portraits, uh, we we got to talk about James Earl Ray, don't we? So, you know, and, and here it is. I know Larry's laughing there, and I laugh too, because quite honestly, um, it's a very confusing road to try and examine James Earl Ray. As an individual, um, you know, let's just go with the guy who was convicted, right, and take a look at him. Um, Not a very clear picture uh, on a lot of levels of who this guy was. If he was truly involved, I've got problems with that, uh, regardless of what anybody's written about it. It's just something doesn't, this guy doesn't settle in right, and then you add the oddity. Of the request for a new trial, what went on there? Uh, Judge Joe Brown, the way he was handled—I I, got to tell you—it becomes a real, a real quagmire, if you will. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald's story, although kind of salacious in weird spots, is um, at least you can understand what's happening now. But I got to tell you, James Earl Ray, different, different character. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, evidence of the actual crime, direct evidence and everything else aside, um, you know, that that's an interesting character to have to deal with. So I, I wonder if you wouldn't just, you know, try and straighten it out a little bit in a couple of minutes uh, uh, for me, Larry. I mean, because you guys don't come down on... James, are away the same way a whole lot. In fact, the majority of authors that I've read uh, do. So, you know, I wonder if you would kind of explain that a little, and, and that'll probably kill the rest of this hour. <laughs> so, uh, and
2: I think the reason we don't is because, I mean, Ray is a fascinating character. So mm-hmm. it's easy to write whole books just about Ray. I mean, how, how many, how many people who can supposedly commit an act of murder on the national scene have most recently been trying to be a porno filmmaker and a bartender. Mm. I mean, Ray's whole saga is so, you know, it's, it's easy to write books about Ray. Uh, Well, it's very,
1: it's also very weird just to try and determine motive, you know, his, his mentality if you take a look like i'll just take a simple question where people have tried to ask you know was james earl ray like a racist um there's not a clear concise answer to that question that i can find maybe i'm wrong but can you see demonstrably that he would have a racial motive let's just boil it down to the most simple thing um can you see that there And, and my answer is i don't know larry um you know, and I don't mean so, to pin you on that, but go ahead.
2: No, and we can, and that's a good place to start. One of the things that, because we, we really do, the good news is so many people have spent most, so much time on Ray that we have, if you take away a lot of the mystery that can get created along the way, you have a pretty clear picture. And the, the best way to talk about context, I would describe James Earl Ray mm-hmm. the same way that his brother did. His brother said, James' whole goal in life was to, A, make money and not work. B, not work. Okay? I mean, that James' world was about making money in the easiest way possible. Uh, he he did, when young, have a regular job for a little while, working in a shoe factory and, and ditched that. But, basically, on the question of, of whether or not he was a racist, I think we have evidence from his time in prison where he Refused to um, actually attend games that were desegregated. Uh, it would have gotten him out of his cell, gotten him out in some fresh air, and he refused to do that. He, he did not like blacks. That's just. But that was no different than anyone that would have been raised in the same milieu that he was. That that was the worldview that he got being raised in. Southern Illinois, Eastern Michigan, outside of St. Louis—that was his whole family was that way. Well, that see, would be expected.
1: Yeah, let me throw a little bit of resistance at you to that, though. Okay, just for consideration—is it possible that it wasn't necessarily about the race thing? But when you're in a prison situation, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily that he did it for that reason. It could be that he was avoiding black people because there is racial violence that goes on in prison. doesn't matter if you're racist or not, it's going to happen if you're locked up, okay? And there could be issues here that go beyond that were not necessarily observable or understood by people who don't necessarily understand prison life. Um, Because I've heard a lot of descriptions about stuff of him being in prison, and in some cases... Seems like he wasn't so racist. In other cases, seems like he was. And maybe we're ascribing the wrong motives to some of the actions that are observable there. Is that possible in your mind, Larry? Because to me, as I said before, when I view these things, I see a very confusing track that leads me to think that you may indeed be right, that he wasn't fond of other races, and maybe that was a very sort of common cultural thing for him. But on the other hand, it may not have been the driving factor behind some of his actions, uh, given the circumstances. You know, even if you don't want to live uh, by racist ideals, you may be compelled to deal with it if you're in a circumstance where this is this is the the population. This is who you're dealing with on the street or in or in lockup. So, is there a possibility that? It
2: it could have been you know. just an avoidance issue. I mean, hmm. if I recall correctly, he did refuse to be moved into a better wing of one prison, which had been desegregated, and maybe violence would explain that. Uh, avoidance was always a big thing for James. He, he wasn't—all I can say is that based on interviews with a number of people that knew him in present no one would characterize him as overtly, angrily or violently racist they did remark on him, you know, when a, a black leader came on TV or he read a newspaper article about something, he was dismissive you know, and, and mm-hmm. thought that they were only in it for the money or the fame uh, but I, I, that would be the best char- way I could characterize it kind of like avoidance slash dismissive, not not proactively racist. Sue, what do you, what do you think about that?
3: I, I would concur um, with Larry there. I mean, first off, I mean, again, and I think Larry said it best, um, it, it, you know, if I had to put money down and you told me working class white person brought up right near St. Louis in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, what are the odds that the person isn't a racial egalitarian I'd probably bet on them not being a racial egalitarian, mm-hmm. but there's a spectrum, right? So, on the one hand, you've got you know, someone like Ed King, who we dedicated our first book to. He is a white Southerner, grew up in the South and risked his life for civil rights. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have people who, like you know, people we write about, J.B. Stoner, and I'll make a point about him in a second who is as hardcore racist, violent as you could ever get. There are a lot of people in between there. There are a lot of people in the South who wanted to maintain the Southern way of life who wouldn't go and burn a cross on somebody's lawn, right? Right. So we don't argue that James O'Reilly had a tremendous amount of racial atomists motivating his activities. We argue it was financial, But I think it's – I think the people who try and make him out – I mean, look at the evidence that people use to try and make him out to be somebody who isn't. And it's that when he was out of prison, right, Right. trying to avoid the law, having escaped from prison, he got along well enough with the cooks in the places that he was pretending to be somebody else while he was out. Right. I mean – that's not, that doesn't absolve you for me of, 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 you know, racial animus. And, and, and Chuck, you have to ask yourself this question. And Larry and I have an answer that isn't even rooted fully in racial animus. Right. But it certainly can't be explained by the folks who try and make James Earl Ray out to be like Dr. Spock or Reverend Ed King or something here. Um,
1: well, oh, see, that's why I said I don't know, well, still. But like yeah.
3: How do you explain his choice of attorneys? He had some of the best new left attorneys there were. Why does he need J.B. Stoner, one of the most virulent racists around, to be his attorney when people like Harold Weisberg are telling him this is going to look terrible for your cause? Mm. Why is he going for people like um, uh, Percy Quinn who's the only clients are the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. There's no good explanation for that except one of two, I would argue. Mm. One is that he is, in fact, very racist, which would undermine the whole argument here. And two is he's reaching out to the people who who he hopes, if he can get out of prison, could get him the money he believes he deserved for the plot. But what doesn't fit that, I don't know a person alive, right, who takes on J.B. Stoner as their attorney if they don't have racial animus. I don't know a person alive, right? Well, so, alternatively... And, and that's just one of about six yeah. attorneys.
1: Oh, I know. could
3: have all of them to go fly a kite. He had Mark Lane, who is a great attorney. Think of what you want about Mark Lane, and but when Gerald Posner got into legal trouble,
1: he went to Mark. You know, Lane. not
3: exactly a fan of Mark Lane's work. Who was the attorney that Mark, that Gerald Posner went looking for? Mm-hmm. Mark Lane. Why? Why is it Mark Lane and Jim Lassar, who also was a very good attorney, and people like that? Why aren't they enough for you? Why are you surrounding yourself with some of the most virulently racist attorneys around when you don't have to? Now, again, right. I don't think it's because he's virulently racist, but the one the one explanation that does not fit is that James Earl Ray uh, is some sort of you know he he's like uh, again he's he's Reverend Ed King and Doctor. Dr Spock he's not even close to that if he has those folks as his attorney
1: oh fair enough uh look I'm just posing the question right yeah. <laughs> so you know because I hear these arguments and one other thing is look uh, the, the last elephant in the room I guess before we go to the break is and I'll start with Stu this time the level of violence that is... Required to be stomached by somebody who's going to aim a rifle at a human being and take their life is um is is a little bit disconnected. It seems in Ray's past, you know, if, if you get accustomed to or you can stomach that easily, that's one thing. You get in, you know, you get involved, in, and it's a matter of doing business. Not a big deal, right? But. Did James Earl Ray seem to be that kind of guy is is the other question because it's not just about racial animus I mean you can hate all day long but it is another level to be willing to take a life so what about that
3: uh my my point would be is that there are plenty of people who have if their if their motivation is money and that's what Larry and I say is the primary motivation mm-hmm. um who unfortunately graduate from say just you know going into somebody's you know
1: graduate from sticking somebody, somebody up somebody is yeah. there
3: to actually shooting the homeowner right. right to get at the stuff i mean it's it's uh, you know if it, you know if if money is your primary object i don't see it as being that great of a departure for you to go from being somebody who's willing to steal stuff to willing to kill somebody in the process of trying to make that money too, mm-hmm. um, I'm not saying it's common, but I don't. It's, it's nothing that eliminates somebody. I know, Larry. What do you think?
1: Well, no, you yeah, see, and, I, that, and that's I, the I, thing, Larry. Me. Really quickly, it, it is one thing to go from being a petty criminal to an assassin, though, and <clears throat> that's a pretty major step. Is there? You know, evidence there that there was a graduation here, or you know, in your opinion, obviously. But I'm just trying to get a feel for this with a couple of minutes left.
2: No, I think that's a very good question. We know two things about historically. He started off in petty crime. Again, he's he doesn't have. Did he do armed robbery? Yes, he did armed robbery. Yes, he carried a weapon on on. Yeah, he was not level of violence where you shoot first. You know, if at all possible, you get away with it. You threaten with the gun, you don't use the gun. Uh, he 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 he. Having him carry a gun, no doubt about that. He wasn't afraid to carry a gun, to threaten people with a gun, not use it. Okay. Uh, so I, I think the two things that you have to add to that is the fact that he was amoral. It, no particular kind of crime bothered him. Hey. That's very clear. And the other thing that occurs that doesn't get much talked about is he was very spontaneous. He was actually pretty good at making plans. He planned escapes really well in most cases, except in Memphis. Um, but in in his the bank robberies and several of the robberies he was involved in, even when he started out with a good plan, once the robbery or the criminal act actually started out he just kind of blew it apart you know he would it would it would implode while he was in process and he would leave mm-hmm. evidence and he would so we know he's amoral we know he's not afraid of carrying a demonstrating weapon and we know that he can tend to act spontaneously and, and not very brightly he, he goes off plan mm-hmm. so we know those three things uh, but I will say He is absolutely not the kind of person that you hire as an assassin. Nobody in their right mind would have picked James Earl Ray to be a paid assassin, which is the point that we make in the book, is that we feel that he was hired and given a deal, but not to be an assassin, to support an assassination
3: yep I concur with that obviously hundred percent
1: there you go no I just I wanted to ask these questions because I don't think you guys have ever been asked this kind of stuff about you know some of the main uh, uh points uh you know in the story in general so I mean not that I know of anyway maybe you have. Uh, but, you know, it's it's an interesting view because it gives us an idea of what it is we're looking at. And a lot of things have been said. You know, you talked about books being written about James Earl Ray. Sure, uh, his brother wrote one, didn't he? <laughs> you know, um, and other people have spent a lot of time on James Earl Ray when writing about the Martin Luther King assassination. Uh, one way or another, so... You know, again, I think we're worthy of a look. And I I say that a lot of this is still unclear in my mind. I mean, I can agree with you guys about the progression and things like this. But, you know, but some things are just as per usual. Right. You live in the gray areas of the world, truthfully. And um, this case is no exception to that. Meanwhile, we are working through the Larry Hancock collection and the bridge between national security and political assassination. Kind of both. And we got Stu Wexler along with us. So two authors, one show, and boy, am I glad you guys are with us. So stick around. The Ocelli Effect will continue after this. We're going to keep discussing Killing King.
4: WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends
1: professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge
4: wallstreetwindow.com Wall Street go, go there now go there now go there now in denial secret wars with airstrikes and tanks by larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Thank you
0: support Chuck Ocelli at Chili.com. Five bucks a month is the price of coffee. Go to Chili.com hit the donate button and if we all do that part, we will get him as wired as a computer. Don't know if that's it, but just support him. is a good thing. Great show. Great people and great topics. So that's it. Thank you.
1: Appreciate that. Of course, you can do it on Patreon.com or you can, uh, you know, because I have a link there on the website. You can just click the Patreon banner, go there, or become a member at Ocelli.com. Wasn't trying to do a commercial but do appreciate you for thinking of it nature boy thank you and also thank you for your support personally my friend
0: Do you like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools? Why?
1: The Vietnam War,
0: nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before that will open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Com. Why? The Vietnam War by author Mike Swanson.
4: jelly.com
0: dot the Learn
3: from our my brother That's where
4: I And now most, the most underrated voice is all, in all
1: The second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now at ocelli.com, but of course, you could be somewhere else, some time else, listening to us via the podcast. Either way, welcome to it. We are in the midst of handling, I believe it's the sixth book in the Larry Hancock collection, Uh, but we also have not just Larry, but his co author, uh, Stu Wexler, who. You know, I, I got to tell you, Larry, Larry's books are a little different when Stu participates in them. And we did one other book, go ahead and look back in the archives, that uh, Stu participated in if you go take a look. But uh, anyway, we may have to talk to Stu again very soon. Um, there's a few things... We might have to go over with Stu Wexler. And, in fact, uh, i got a whole bunch of ideas that I'd love to talk to you about, Stu, and uh, see what it is you are working on now, etc. But, as it stands, we are talking about Killing King. And, no, it was not written by Bill O'Reilly, but it may have trolled him a touch. And where do we begin telling that story, Larry? Um, I mean, is there a, a, a year, an individual, a event where we need to begin to set the stage for what's going to go on in Killing King.
2: Uh, There certainly is. And it it reaches further back than most people who write about the assassination go. I mean, the the bottom line is most, most people would look uh, who are the suspects in 1968, you know, who are the immediate suspects. But when we, when we started researching this case, I think, and it, it surprised me, certainly, because I'm someone who lived through this whole period of time, to find that Dr. King had been at risk. I, everyone knew that, you know, racists didn't like him, but I didn't had no idea that he had actually been under specific threats as far back as the late 1950s. And we can trace this back, and now we know that, for example, a bounty— was offered on Dr. King. It's an interesting bounty. It was a bounty to blow up a church, but along with blowing up the church, it was also killing Dr. King. And a fellow named J.B. Stoner took the bounty and actually gave a discount in the deal because he hated King so much that he thought the opportunity to participate in killing him was just a bonus on the deal. And so he actually, Stoner was famous for blowing up things in and, and churches. And, and so he took the bounty. And they ended up blowing up a church, indeed, but not killing Dr. King. And the FBI actually conducted a sting in that case and, and at least slowed these folks down for a bit. But it, it goes back that far in time that, that King was actually a target of a certain click, click of ultra-violent white racists. And it wasn't uh-huh. just in the South. This is a clique that ranged all the way from the L.A. area across the southern states, across Mississippi, Alabama. It was actually a network of people who who virulently hated King. Um, well,
1: but- and, and in fairness, Larry, it's not one plot, one bounty. Because well. there were several attempts to raise money. In fact, there's a guy who has ties to the... JFK assassination. Who um, went around and uh, you know? Again, there 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 were con artists involved who were taking money uh, to collect among people. You want you want to see King killed, kind of thing, and um, you go to the right audience, you can pass the hat and get some money. And there were people who did that, and uh, there was more than one bounty on his head, indeed, among several groups. Some may be more serious than others. Um, Am I I out of left field here?
2: And separating them out, of course, is a challenge. But I I think one of the things that, because we were able to get so far into the FBI records and know what the FBI investigated, it did become possible to separate some of the, the talking and the threats and the offers from the serious bounties, where actually he was directly at risk, but, but you're right, Chuck. And there, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of offers of money, a lot of, but, uh, the next time, the next, the where things really started to get serious, uh, especially among the group of people that we focused in on. And these were not people that were unknown to the FBI because all these threats were investigated and documented in 1964. Uh, the white knights of Ku Klux Klan, who become very significant in this because they were very much at the center operationally of this clique that I'm talking about, it. they they were considered as the most violent and dangerous domestic terrorist group, as Stu said earlier, all the way from the attorney general in California across the South. I mean, even the folks in California considered them highly dangerous. Um they actually extended a bounty offer, and this is, this is where it really begins to get interesting. They extended this offer to a, a contract criminal network, uh, to, uh, what was, what was operationally a, a, a gang of very violent, uh, burglars, assassins, contract killers, um, and they actually extended this offer to a fellow named Sparks, who actually operated out of Oklahoma. And the offer to him, again, as documented by the FBI, it was that um, they were going to make sure that King had a reason to come to Mississippi. And when he came to Mississippi, um, Sparks was supposed to assassinate him, uh, shooting from a distance with a rifle. It would, was to be... A sniper attack and actually this all came about the only reason the attack did not occur is because these kind of guys operate only on cash in advance Mm -hmm. and the white knights could not come up with the cash to hand over and sparks just said well sorry no cash no deal and bailed on them and Mm -hmm. uh, kind of at that point in time the white knights were cash poor basically and they had to turn back into Coming up with a plan to kill King themselves. And they did recycle that plan and actually came up with a very sophisticated attack on, on King that was supposed to occur in 1965. And they, they, this plan was revealed to the FBI by an inside informant that they, that they had inside the Klan. And they were actually planning to, um, uh, sniper attack. On his motorcade, as far as he was traveling to a speech, and if the sniper attack didn't attack didn't occur, it, they didn't get him that way. They had dynamite placed so they were going to blow up the whole bridge and take him out that way. The only thing that saved Dr. King that time, as it did on many occasions, is he changed his plans at the last moment and didn't take that road. And uh, Stu and I think probably documented half a dozen times or more where there were plans like this in place that were very serious, but Dr. King was very spontaneous, and someone would approach him and say, please come over here and talk, or come over, and he would change his schedule constantly, and Mm -hmm. without even knowing it, frustrate these types of attacks. Uh, That happened again in 1966. Now, what really changed with the White Knights and these very serious plots to kill King was the fact that the white Knights themselves, as Stu mentioned earlier, came under intense pressure from the FBI. Uh, You can argue with their tactics. You can argue about their civil liberties, but they decided they would take on the FBI guys head on and even threaten them and go after their families. And it kind of turned into a war and the white Knights lost. And by 1967, Uh, Because of the Mississippi murder, Mississippi burning murders, which they had done, uh, they had actually been caught and convicted. And most all of them were scheduled to go into jail. And at that point in time, they were back to the point of, well, we can't do it. You know, they know us. They're watching us. They're watching our every move. You know, here's a we need a Hail Mary shot to do what we've been trying to do to start a race war for some time now, and they actually managed to raise some money. And at that point, I'll, I'll turn it over to, uh, to Stu and let him talk about what happened from 1967
3: to 68. Um, yeah, and I'll add one thing to what Larry said, which I think is really key. Other people have had – and it's a basic investigatory move, especially in a homicide – said, you know what, I'm going to go look at the record of plots against King. And the group that, you know, the organization that did it most obviously was the House Select Committee on Assassinations. What they failed to do, and their big sort of blind spot, but it's a blind spot that you can forgive a little bit because it's something that really is lost on a lot of scholars of history, and we'll get into it a lot more when we talk in a few days about the the book I did, America's Secret Jihad, is they embrace this conventional view, which is mostly true, that all of these different Klan organizations are hyper-fragmented and they're rivals with each other and they don't like each other. And for the most part, that is true. But within independent Klan groups across the country – what Larry and I document is, is there's this rising ideology that goes hidden to a large extent because it's not, it's not something that you would expect people to embrace, but it is something that aligns very well with conventional racism. And that's this sort of religious ideology which believes that it is actually biblically ordained that we will have a race war but that the people, white Europeans, have a role in making it happen. It's a a perverted, racist version of Christianity that we call Christian identity. And the key thing to understand is if you view the groups as secular, the groups, the, the plots and the individuals especially who tried to kill King from 58 to 68 as secular, conventional Clan organizations, then you say what the HSCA says, which is they don't work well together. They don't work across state lines. They don't really have that strong a connection to each other. But if you focus on the individuals like J.B. Stoner or Sam Bowers, who ran the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and you focus on this ideological sort of glue, They aren't getting together in a room any more than Al-Qaeda got together in a room for every single plot that emerged from Al-Qaeda's ideology. But it does unite almost every single plot is this thread of we need to start a race war. Killing King is a key component of that. And it becomes even more obvious as a strategy, for some of the reasons we talked about in the first hour, in '67 and '68, when the country's in turmoil and one of the key cleavages is race. So, with that in mind, when we get to 1967 and '68, Larry is absolutely correct. There is one big problem that that groups a lot of different groups, but especially the group that was most active in trying to kill King, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, there's one big issue that they are facing now that they have not faced prior to this, which is they're going to prison. They're getting tried for the first time in large numbers, they being white supremacists, especially in Mississippi. But it's the case for somebody like Sam Bowers, who is the Grand Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, That he's never been closer, and people like him have never been closer. They can taste their race war. They're talking about it, right? Um, It's being reported on by FBI informants even one to two years before that these folks are hot on the trail of a race war. And so what you have happen is what often happens with religious-oriented terrorism – they're going to find a way. Prison is not the is, is not the end-all, be-all for these folks. They have a cosmic idea of what they need to do. So what they do is, as Larry said, they resort to an old plan. They resurrect an old plan, which is to go to outsiders to try and kill King, specifically to a criminal organization. Larry described it. That gets the name. It's, it's probably not a very good label, but we call them the Dixie Mafia. If anybody in the audience has watched the TV series Justified, that's the kind of people that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Pretty hardcore criminals who are willing to do just about anything for money. Lower, less scruples, less moral qualms than the Sicilian Mafia. And they don't have the same kind of organizational hierarchy that the Sicilian Mafia does. And they're not just in Dixie, but the group that they reach out to, or at least that gets wind again of the resurrected plot, is a particular Dixie Mafia group out of Oklahoma. And it gets to them through the circulation of the plot. It goes in – I actually should say it in a different way. Those groups start circulating the bounty offer in American prisons, mm-hmm. federal and state level. And if you go into the investigation that the FBI largely tried to bury of what was happening in uh, Missouri State Prison where or Jeff City where, where Ray was, ha- was housed before he escaped in 67 – The the bounty offers certainly appear to be circulating there. They're circulating in prisons across the country. They're circulating in Atlanta-based prisons. And so what you you get is a basic outline of a plot. And now, by the way, the folks on in the – as the 60s go further, these groups start to – get smaller, but they also become more ideologically coherent. They start to become increasingly more enthusiastic about this ideology and they're become increasingly more willing to work together across state lines. Mm-hmm. And so it looks very clearly as if and you mentioned somebody not by name, but Joseph Miltier. Right. That somebody like Joseph Miltier in the Southeast in the Carolina, Georgia area has found a way of raising the money that could go to the group that is shown the most aptitude, the least scruples, the least qualms about doing it. It goes from – the money goes from the southeast to the, uh, the, the, the very southeast, again, Georgia – it goes to Mississippi, mm-hmm. and then the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan circulate a bounty in prisons for a hundred thousand dollars right. for people who are willing to kill King. And, and the we know about this.
1: Well, let me, let me interrupt you. Revealed it in 1967. Right now And me... that becomes sort of the origin mm-hmm. story
3: of our investigation. One of the main angles that we explore. Can we find the person Mm -hmm. who tried to rat this plot out to the FBI? And can we confirm what he said? Because he's saying it, the document is dated before the King assassination. And Chuck, I think you wanted to ask
1: something. Yeah, I do, because I've actually got just, while you were speaking, a bunch of uh, comments and uh, a couple of questions came up live, and uh, I'd like to enter them in before I forget about them. Um, The type of people that... uh, Let's see. The type of people that Stu is talking about is like Charles Harrelson types, Uh, is one comment. We have another one that uh, in the chat room, uh, I don't know if it's a question or a comment, but they call it the state line mob. Yes to both. Sorry?
2: Yes to both.
1: Yes to both. (laughs) And the last thing is, uh, is James Earl Ray's brother still alive? I, d- I don't I remember.
3: Both of them are. I might be wrong on that, but I think both Jerry and John are still alive. Mm. Um, and we'll t- and it's worth talking about them maybe in a little bit um, because one of the things we know, Jerry Ray, the FBI had turned his girlfriend, who, by the way, Newark. You mentioned Newark. Uh, he was in New Jersey. The FBI had turned his girlfriend and her – and his landlord basically mm-hmm. into, inf- into informants, and Jerry, by the way, to this day doesn't know that because when I wrote him to ask him about what I'm about to talk about, he accused somebody else who's a well-known informant. He, mm-hmm. I don't think he knows that his girlfriend and someone associated with him who sort of was almost like his landlord – Mm-hmm. Were both informants. He talked to them about his brother's motives, and he point blank said and referenced the number one hundred thousand. My brother basically did it for money. He was trying to get, and he said anywhere from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. In and you would do it, and he said words to the effect of, "If you were on the run." and you knew what you were facing in terms of a return to prison, you would do it for that kind of money too. It would be $800,000 in today's money. Mm -hmm. And so that's consistent with the report we have of the $100,000 bounty being circulated to people within the Dixie Mafia. Now, that word wasn't used in the documents. What we did was we traced different elements of the documents we were able to eventually get for instance, unredacted versions of this document that reported in 1967 of a bounty being offered in prison. And we were able to run down and confirm a large number of the details that this person talked about. And most notably, we found the source. We found somebody who was offered a role in the King assassination on his way out of prison and did not want to get caught up in it but did not want to die in prison so he told he did not say no his name is donald he did not say no to the people who offered it but at the first chance he got he tried to unburden himself to the fbi about the nature of the plot thinking that that would get him that would disengage him from the plot and what wound up happening is he doesn't know we know because we have the background of the investigation of his story. Right. The, <laughs> the people in, in the prison uh, did not know for a while that he had ratted them out. In the interim, he gets approached by somebody and we were able to run this down as well. He gets approached by somebody in Georgia. With a package to take to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. He doesn't put it together. We put it together for him in many ways. Um, it was all connected. This, The delivery of the package to him. Where he delivered it. He wound up and he did not realize it. Delivering it to somebody who was a sort of girlfriend for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Of a important figure in the Oklahoma Dixie Mafia that this group that included Donald Sparks from 1964 and it it seems very clear that what happened is that the same Dixie Mafia group that responded to the White Knights bounty offer in 64 now they went back at it with a much higher dollar value on the line and the plot is interesting itself Nissen, again, this is before King is assassinated. This is a year, almost a year before. He details two roles. One role that he was recruited to potentially do that he said didn't say no to but didn't embrace was to case and follow King's movements and then report that to the people who, if you wanted to take the second role, you would have been part of the group of people who would actually kill King. The people who were the who would case King's movements were set to get a much smaller share of the bounty, as you might expect, than the people who were going to kill King outright.
1: Well and then and there's so, then there's also the possibility that you could collect more than one bounty and divide it up too, because there was more than one available.
3: Certainly, but in this case where it seems to be pretty clear is is that unlike the other bounties that we know of the plots that are out there we know money changed hands we Mm. know the money was delivered, we know who got it we know who delivered it the go between on that, where it was delivered and we know that the people surrounding where it was delivered were the people who were the most serious people and the most active people in trying to kill Martin Luther King um, those were the people who were behind the bounty. So we have the reemergence of a 64 plot in 67 to 68 right. that involved reaching out to criminals in the prison system to recruit them for the plot. And we don't believe – we heard – we believe Ray, and we think the evidence suggests that Ray heard rumors, peripheral rumors about that particular bounty offer before he escaped he did not escape with the intention of following that bounty it was on his mind that we talked about it with other prisoners right. um, and then what wound up happening is if you follow the, the story of the King assassination in the months immediately really the weeks immediately before King gets killed mm-hmm. Ray very clearly stalks King and very clearly lies about stalking King later Uh, That is what we believe you would recruit James Earl Ray for and what he was recruited for. We identified the famous person under the alias of J.C. Hardin uh, who reached out to Ray when Ray was – right before Ray started going to the same cities and places that King was at. And we were able to identify who he was. Um, We're not the first, but we're the first to publish it. And his name was James W. Ashmore. And his career very closely looks like somebody who certainly would have been familiar with, if not directly involved with, the Dixie Mafia. He had connections to Mississippi. He showed up for the 62 Ole Miss Race Riot. And that's the person who reaches out to Ray under an alias right before Ray starts showing up in places where King was visiting.
1: Now, for context Too much here,
3: to be a coincidence, but go ahead. Yeah, no.
1: For context here, though, it is very interesting and unique that you're able to come up with. You know, we, we've heard the term "fixer" in the news over the past couple of years, <clears throat> but uh, they're guys that that's what they do. They're the guys who broker stuff, basically. Um, they don't kill anybody, but they <laughs> they're involved in the transactions. They're the go betweens that are the stop gaps. And uh, is is this guy one of those people who just fixes situations? I mean, it could be murder. It could be, you know, uh, a piece pieces of merchandise that are too identifiable. Maybe we got to move them somewhere else. Can't get it done. Is he one of these
4: guys? Uh, Sue, I think
3: um, you've got no, Larry. Go ahead.
1: Good. Ahead, I was
4: just
2: going to comment part of the one of the ways to understand that is that again we really most people underrate the sophistication of the kind of network we're talking with the dixie mafia um these guys operated all all across the south but they didn't operate where they lived for example the guys from oklahoma would do jobs in alabama or mississippi they didn't do jobs at home they might do a job in Kansas a guy from Kansas very sophisticated they and they operated through basically a, a communications network at a series of I don't know you wouldn't they really were a little higher than bars they they would be you know places where you could stay and there was a bar there and they would they had codes and they would messages and basically they would post jobs and circulate jobs so it might not necessarily. If, if you wanted to be part of the network, you would relay these jobs that were outstanding, and you would stay part of the network. You might not get money for that special job. You might not be a fixture for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were, um, but it was. It was on the the scale of complexity. It's really kind of amazing because it, unlike the the mobs that you usually think about that are, you know, city oriented or very geographically tight this network involved roadhouses across the you know several states mm-hmm. and so to answer your question I think it's again I never knew these people existed until we came across a couple of attorney generals the best attorney general report that we found was in Kansas uh, and they had really dug into these crimes because some of their operators operated in Colorado but they would come back to Kansas it, fascinating network so Mm. but to answer your question the people that we identify could have had either roles they could have just been a courier relating an opportunity or they could have actually had expected a percentage
1: Ah, okay no I, I so the idea is that it could be somebody who's involved or it could be somebody just passing things along the network because they're getting their own information like yeah this time I'm just passing it along maybe next time I get a job uh, yep. that kind of thing. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. No, I just want to make that clear because it's, uh, it's, it's a different sort of network. I understand the Italian networks, uh, and how they worked. And I'll tell you the truth. It's, it's still something that not everybody seems to get when it comes to, you know, why it is that Joe Gallo imports the zips at one point and all this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting in its sophistication. But it is very different. And I'm, I'm glad you make this point about it, that, uh, you know, geographical displacement. Look, you're out of town, guys. You're just rolling through. And, oh, well, something happened, and you're gone. Uh, that is an interesting way to look at the ebb and flow of it. So, and we, well done. We found,
2: okay. Again, we found the same thing. Again, I think Stu pointed out where the HSCA made a mistake. Clan groups by 66 67 were coming under so much pressure they were actually doing the same thing
1: well see they that was yeah that was my was next
2: job it over
1: yeah see yeah. that was my next point about it is that uh, you know if it were not for the disruption which I do believe that you know if you look at the movie Mississippi burning it captures the fact that these guys felt as though they were not going to be challenged by any law enforcement. Uh, you know, in certain places. And I think they were a bit stunned at this time period based on that Mississippi incident that, uh, that Stu was talking about. I, I think the fact that they actually got bit, uh, yeah. shook them up. And yeah, it cost them monetarily and it disrupted their infrastructure. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the network didn't still exist. I mean, am I right or wrong, Stu? I,
3: I think you're absolutely right. And again, it's sort of like two, different forces are happening at the same time, they're they're losing membership, they're bleeding membership, and they're getting prosecuted like you wouldn't believe. But at the same time, what's left is a core of sort of pure racists, for lack of a better term, people who are proactive more than reactive and had been for a while in many cases mm-hmm. – Others have, were coming around to this idea of you know race war, trying to you know something more ideological, something much more religious, but they just could not maintain. They couldn't go to a group of ten thousand people and say we think Jews are literally the offspring of the devil, mm-hmm. right? It, they would be like, "What are you? Where are you getting this from?" Right? Um, but but they couldn't do that in nineteen sixty four. The appeal of sort of hiding that and just going on a purely racial agenda was that you now had 10,000 people that you could potentially align yourself with and manipulate to get your race war. Mm -hmm. When those people fell off, when thousands of them went away, when they lost basically the civil rights fight, when they lost, thankfully, on the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. The people who are left are very hardcore and they're increasingly ideological. Mm. And so what you get is is a group of people now who are willing to work especially for the goal of killing somebody like King across state lines, operate and move across state lines with rival groups that were, you know, you used to compete for members with. Right. King, that all goes away. By you know 1966, those groups are at least when it comes to King, they're willing to put their differences aside.
1: See, I will get rid of them. Yeah, and I will tell you that I think Georgia, from what I can understand about the history here, of course I wasn't here, but uh, from what I understand, Georgia was a different place. You still had the religion here in Georgia. You know what I mean? Um, Right.
3: Well, Joseph Miltier was somebody who collected tapes of sermons for this religion that we'll talk about, you know, when I talk about a book called Christian Identity, mm-hmm. he was hardcore. I mean, and he would go to meetings where like, in in the early 60s where they're thinking about, you know, mass assassination as a way of trying to stir the pot and get this race war brewing.
1: And he lived in Georgia.
3: And he's <laughs> a guy who we believe raised yeah. the money in the Southeast to, to go to the, the, to Mississippi, to Jackson for the purpose of and now the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan have their their pot that they can finally use to entice this Dixie Mafia with.
2: right? But, but to get to Chuck's point, he didn't raise the money. What we've learned about the way he raised the money, he raised the money much more subtly. And there was Correct. actually he raised the money by uh, they would go to automobile factories in the Atlanta area. And basically, you were seeing a lot of uh, neighborhood integration, or at least neighborhoods that were changing from white to black. Um, there there were a lot of people that were very upset with the cultural changes that were going on, the school integration. So they would collect money. They didn't collect money to kill king. They didn't collect money to kill blacks. They collected money to fight This political. Basically, they postured it in a political movement. You know, donate and we'll we're going to get the right people elected, and we're going to stop this breaking up neighborhoods. And that's how they were able to actually collect the money. You're right, Chuck. It was it was a much, uh, I I don't know, a much less violent, a much less, a much filtered message. It wasn't the Mm -hmm. old purely radical message. But that got them the money, which they could route to the people that were (laughs) ready to use it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So with the last 15 minutes here on this show, um, you know, we're going to have to jump through the rest of what you have in there a bit. And obviously, uh, I urge you to read the book, you the listener, (laughs) because this this is a lot to take in. And it is unique. Uh, in the King literature about the assassination. I just want to say that because, honestly, when when you guys first started talking to me about this years ago, uh, before before this was published, I know, um, I, I had never heard some of this stuff. And I, I had never heard a whole lot of stuff that you guys wind up kicking over quite matter-of-factly in this book. I uh, you know I, I don't know who to credit it to but there is a uh, a whole different angle here and a completely different approach from what you usually get in a book devoted to the king assassination so killing king uh you know got to tell you guys I I I got to recommend it based on just what I know and you know I'm I'm not saying that there is maybe not more that could be written about this. I think there is. Um, and I think there's still more to be revealed. I mean, that's, that's almost always one of my, my go to lines, right? Is that there's always more things hidden than you might realize until they're no longer hidden. Um, and an honest examination of the information that you guys are presenting here. Unfortunately, explains a lot of weirdness that we see currently. Um, how is it that groups that really should be at odds with one another can come together? How is it you can have a network long before there was an internet that communicates quite well, keeps its, you know, is smart enough to not uh, publish everything on a forum? Um, you know, things do happen this way, but anyway the battle's not over. Stu, how is it that we could sort of go through the rest and give people a, a really good idea of the rest of what is in Killing King?
3: Well, first of all I want to say that there's other there's other independent lines of evidence that get us to the same place and we probably don't have a whole lot of time to do it, but I'll just we have, for instance, a tape recording now of the former chief terrorist for the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Flat out saying, I got a rifle to kill King, and this was two weeks before – three weeks before the assassination. Um, And that's independent, right? This is a whole independent line. So what happens if you start digging into what was happening with the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and not root yourself in this bounty document? You find a whole load of independent evidence suggesting they certainly had something to do with it. They were the driving force There's peripheral characters Some of whom, one of whom becomes an attorney For James Earl Ray We talked about before J.B. Stoner But what I would like to say And it probably is easier explained Once people fully digest the book Is if you follow where we go It resolves a ton of contradictions In the assassination Sort of conundrum of Martin Luther King that I don't think people often ask themselves or confront regarding what happened, right? So I'll give you one example. You had mentioned, first of all, earlier, I just wanted to return to it. You know, somebody who studied Oswald and Larry's done the same thing for, you know, 30 some odd years now, there's nothing like the sort of peripheral holy cow, that's a really strange thing that Oswald is doing that you have for James Earl Ray in terms of, you know, suspicion of intelligence. You know, Oswald, everywhere he goes, someone in intelligence is like hanging around him. With James Earl Ray, it's almost entirely James Earl Ray's own words. Almost <laughs> none of it can be verified. The whole Raoul story, that he's being set up like a, complete dupe like a puppet by some international man of mystery whose physical description constantly changes depending on the year that James Earl Ray gives you the story. Right. And so one of the sort of contradictions, you know, was James Earl Ray a shooter? Now, if you buy James Earl Ray's story that he's a complete and total dupe who was manipulated like a puppet master. With this guy, Raul, you have a problem on your hands, mm. which is why would Raul have manipulated James Earl Ray moment by moment, minute by minute, completely James Earl Ray is completely supposedly oblivious to it, and then he has Ray drop off the rifle and just go out on his own. Mm. You know, in any other world, that's setting Ray up to have a complete and complete and totally verifiable alibi. Why would you let him just leave, which is what Ray's story is? Why would you use a different rifle, which is also what Ray's and his lawyer's attorney is? Why wouldn't you use the rifle that has his fingerprints that you brought to the scene that was perfectly capable of doing the shooting? Mm -hmm. But there's other contradictions, right? So one of the great conspiratorial pieces of evidence is this CB radio broadcast where – police are misdirected for several minutes away from where Ray would be escaping towards in a fake sort of chase with a vehicle that turned out to never exist. And, you know, that was like investigated intently with every attempt was made to try and make that out to be a hoax. And they could not make that out to be just a childish kind of prank hoax. And it's incredibly suspicious, of course. Who is using a CB radio to misdirect the police after the assassination away from the area that Ray would be going if he was – and he did go if he's trying to head back to Georgia – But the problem is is that that event, that very suspicious event, occurs 20 to 30 minutes after the assassination. In other words, if your goal is to give whoever was the shooter time to get out of Memphis, you kind of blew it. Mm -hmm. But if you argue, as we do, that many things about this crime don't make sense if you assume that everything was carefully planned and worked out the way the conspirators wanted it to. Then everything starts to change. So, for instance, the CB radio incident. The best guess that, re- that Larry and I have is that the people who were expecting King to be killed were themselves caught off guard by what happened to King. They started putting two and two together, and they realized that somebody Mm -hmm. had literally and figuratively jumped the gun. That would also, by the way, explain while somebody who is notoriously not very good at thinking on his or her feet would take a blanket with all of the goods that could potentially be traced to them. Run out of the building, the Brewer, Betsy Brewer's rooming house, which is across the road from where King is, is shot, but then ultimately dump that material in front of Canopy's amusement store. Everybody thinks that's, that's so suspicious. They're framing – obviously framing Ray. But the question you have to ask yourself is what would Ray have done if – He leaves all of that material in the room. He doesn't know to what extent he could be identified and associated with that room. And he would be leaving it all in one place for them to trace, including things like his prison radio. Mm. If he goes outside and thinks, I'm just going to take it into my white Mustang and get out of Dodge, he's got to realize and pretty quickly that there's going to be a manhunt so if he gets caught with the gun in the vehicle, that's, that's even worse than it being in the rooming house. So what choice do you have other than to abandon it as soon as possible so that you're not caught red-handed holding it? So what I'm trying to say is, and I read the book, I think we do a better job of explaining this. Mm-hmm. Ray may very well have been on that periphery But what motivates Ray? Ray is motivated by money. And there is this bounty. And the only reason Ray is even in Memphis is because of the bounty. He almost definitely got the rifle to give to somebody else to pull off the shooting at a longer range distance. Mm -hmm. But Ray is greedy as can be. He doesn't always think things fully through. Um... And he decides, having gone to this rooming house, that he himself now has a chance to potentially collect a hundred thousand instead of ten thousand. Hmm. And that explains why he went for the attorneys. He went for that explains what his brothers did, especially Jerry, in joining some of the most virulently racist groups you could imagine after his brother is accused of a racist crime. It explains uh, Ray's behavior, I believe, even in the decades that followed to wit. James Earl Ray never fully collected the money that he believed he deserved. But James Earl Ray knows that if he gives the full story, he is culpable in the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Hmm. So his only way to thread the needle... ...is to create this story where he's a complete dupe, a story that constantly changes, that is full of demonstrable lies, and try and get himself out of prison while maintaining good relations and direct contact through attorneys. Just like mob people do when they get sent to prison, they use mob attorneys to reassure the people who are behind the larger crime that they're going to not turn on them. And so what Ray's game was, was his game was to try and get himself out of prison and get himself in a position to collect the bounty he felt he fully deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of, there's a lot of details that we fill in in the book, um, but that would be the big picture that I would encourage people to keep an open mind to. While simultaneously, while simultaneously, thinking about what we said in part one which is the last thing the national security state would want to do is leave the country in between somebody like Sam Bowers and somebody I don't hold them in the same moral equivalence as Stokely Carmichael you're going to get the race war you're trying to prevent King is the only person standing in between those folks who's preaching nonviolence. it's the groups that want that race war that kill King, um, and I'll leave it at that. Um, don't have a whole lot of time for you. I mean, maybe you take it away, Chuck. Whatever you want. From
0: well,
1: that. you know, the only thing I'm sad I didn't get to is the civil trial uh, with you guys because <clears throat> I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Um, because
3: can I, I give one super quick one sentence, two sentence thing that discredits the entire civil trial? Go right ahead. You'll hear people debate back and forth about whether or not both sides wanted the same outcome in the civil trial because it was for barely any money. And we know from Ray's own attorney that uh, the civil trial against Lloyd Jowers was directed. Jowers hoped to sell a movie script for over Mm -hmm. $100,000. But it's quantifiably provable that that trial was a sham. And I mean that with the utmost respect for the King family. Uh, You could go and check. You could do it yourself. Anyone at home could do it. Go look for the word objection in the trial. The whole transcript. The whole transcript is available online. See how often, for instance, most notably, Lloyd Jowers, the person who's being sued as part of a conspiracy to kill King by the King family, how often did his attorneys object to what, the prosecution or the plaintiff's team was doing. The answer is zero. That's unheard of, folks. There were more objections, way more, on the first day of the O.J. Simpson civil trial, way more than in the entire King civil trial. Why? Because the attorney for Jowers wanted the conspiracy outcome. He allowed the most ridiculous things to happen in the history and annals of civil law and criminal law. You would never, ever let somebody's husband testify directly on behalf of the wife and not object and have it thrown out as hearsay. Mm. But he sat there while the wife, who wasn't there to be cross-examined, while the husband testified on her behalf, that's nothing that would ever happen if you really were interested in protecting your client from being convicted. It would be thrown out as hearsay, wow. right? He let it happen. His name was Jim Garrison. He's not the same Jim Garrison. It was and I, rigged, I would, folks. I,
2: I would, one thing to that, Stu, Chuck, I, to kind of sum it up, mm-hmm. we have a problem with both trials. And Ray's original trial since he pled guilty, his attorney allowed all the evidence that had been collected against him to be entered into evidence with no challenge.
4: Right.
2: So there was absolutely no vetting of the evidence initially. And that's a huge problem, as the HSCA found. And in this civil trial, basically you had all of the conspiratorial evidence Entered into the record with no challenge. No challenge. Trials aren't supposed to work like that, so we're stuck with two trials that give us virtually no value.
1: Hmm. And I think the whole trial transcript might be available online at the uh, King Center's website. Actually, if somebody wanted to go and see if they could find the word objection in the transcript, (laughs) Um, find it, but it's not
3: written. It's not from Jower's attorneys.
1: Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Killing King, guys. That's the name of the book that we took care of here on this episode of the uh, Larry King. Co- uh, Larry King, that's funny. <laughs> of the Larry Hancock collection. Larry King recently died. I don't know how that popped into my mind, but I didn't mean any offense, Larry Hancock. Larry well, okay. Hancock.com is uh, Larry's website. Stu Wexler, you know what? I have a, uh, a link for where you can reach out to him on social media. Uh, I urge you to take a look at both of their authors' pages on Amazon. I'll put links in the show description. And uh, we're all done for tonight, but in two more weeks, we'll get together for the next uh, book in the Larry Hancock Collection. And I assure you, it'll be good just like this one was. Anyway, I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect. Good night.